Welcome to CVM Stories, the podcast on customer value management. Together, we explore how companies can be more successful and the customers happier through the use of latest customer value management techniques. Learn key commercial and analytical insights from telecoms, retail, finance, and other industries that drive CVM forward. Welcome to Season 2 of CVM Stories. I'm your host, Sharunas, and today our very special guest is Matthew Tilling, head of CRM at Telia Lithuania. In this episode, we will talk about digital transformation, customer centricity, and all about channels. Traditional channels, digital channels, email, and everything else related to channels. The importance of those channels in modern customer value management strategies. So, let's hear it. CVM Stories is produced by Exacaster. We help companies take their customer value management to the next level. To stay updated on our latest episodes, subscribe to the podcast or sign up for an email newsletter at exacaster.com slash cvmstories. Okay, so Matt, uh, welcome to CVM Stories. Very nice to have you here. Thanks for having uh, me. So I know that you're head of uh, CRM, uh, CRM at uh, Telia Lithuania. Maybe you can tell uh, the viewers a little bit about what this uh, role is all about. Sure, yeah. So um, uh, CRM really is, is, is about customer communication at Telia uh, and, and different from the, the CVM function because it, it's really just about the, the communication piece. Uh, and my team is really responsible for making sure that our communications are the best they can possibly be for the customer because we know that this is a big part of customer experience. Not the only part, of course, but a big part. Um, and what that means is that we, we, we plan, we prioritize, and we deliver these communications across you know, automated trigger journeys right the way through to campaigns and, and ad hoc stuff. Um, and then we continuously optimize it. We take it forward. And again, the whole idea is just to make it best in class, the best mm -hmm. it can possibly be for our customers. Uh, when you say communication, does that include uh, more traditional channels like telemarketing or is it more the digital channels? What's the scope? Um, good question. I think, uh, yeah, for now, it's it's predominantly in the digital channels. Okay. But the, the scope is always expanding. Um, and we are expanding into those more traditional channels, assisted channels. And what that means is really controlling the base in those channels, making sure that we're not over-communicating, making mm -hmm. sure it's as segmented and relevant as possible. Um, and increasingly uh, covering off the transactional comms as well. So not just commercial-oriented communication, but... Yeah, the, the the transactional stuff, and, and there's a lot of it in uh, in telco for sure. <laughs> yeah. Do you work with the branding team a lot? Do you get like people coming in and redesigning the message because it fits better with the brand, or is this uh, your your call? Uh, it's our call. Okay. But for sure, uh, I know there are people in our marketing department who would like to make some changes to yeah, our, yeah, yeah. our communication. Let's redesign the invoice, and then nobody understands. Yeah. It. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, I think uh, increasingly we'll be working more with uh, the marketing team going forward because the, the scope is expanding and, yeah, we have to make sure it's consistent across all those channels. Very nice. So let's go back a little bit uh, before Telia. So maybe you can give us uh, the backstory of how did you end up in Lithuania and uh, <laughs> what, what did you do before that? So, yeah, so I... I think my story is quite uh, a typical one for like a foreigner in Lithuania. I, I was in London. I worked in London for eight years. I'm from the UK. And uh, I met a Lithuanian girl and uh, we had um, uh, COVID hit. So we, we were together in London for a while and then COVID hit. And then we decided that we wanted to move back here. And I think uh, always uh, my wife wanted to move back to Lithuania. I think this is quite typical. 
Um, so yeah, during COVID, we realized, you know, what's the point of staying in London? Let's, yeah. let's get out. And, and it was a new adventure for me. Um, but in London for work, I was, I was consulting. I was consulting for, for about six years. Uh, and it was mainly focused in CRM, in, in data, generating value from data, and then increasingly geared more towards digital transformation, how that all plugs into the broader digital transformation. Um, yeah, and that's really how I ended up uh, uh, in Lithuania and, and at Telia, uh, because, uh, you know, I was, I was looking for jobs in, in Lithuania and I thought, God, what am I going to do? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do here? And uh, I, I saw a job ad on LinkedIn and for Telia and... The, the lady came back to me and said, actually, this isn't for you, but I think there's someone who might be interested. And then my boss-to-be called me and said, we have this big transformation project. Why don't you do it? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I just thought, this is great. I mean, this is exactly what I was doing. It was an opportunity to go client-side. Yeah. But great. It was, I, was, I was quite lucky in that regard. Yeah, I'll go into the client-side versus consulting side in a moment, but maybe yeah. you can also tell us how did you end up in consulting and where is the marketing interest coming from so what's what what was the career path like sure. up to there so yeah I, I i guess it's not a typical one um i i mean yeah, i graduated uni i studied classics at uni so like ancient what is history classics? ancient history okay <laughs> uh, and i and i kind of specialized in roman history so it's you know entirely unrelated lots of fun but yeah um and then i you know i left uni and i didn't know what to do and i did a couple of jobs here and there. And then I joined a, a marketing agency as a kind of like marketing person for the agency. Okay. Um, and I was doing that for a year. Uh, and this agency I was working for was uh, data and CRM. Uh, and I became really interested in like what people are doing because I saw how data was being used. Um, and my, my boss at the time uh, kind of let me get involved in a couple of projects. Um, and from there, it just kind of took off. I, I really enjoyed this idea of, we will look at your data, we will understand where the value pockets are for you as a business, and we will implement, uh, you know, comms programs or strategies that will deliver tangible value. And I think that's what really appealed to me is this idea of you can be scientific in your approach, you can see tangible value, and then you can present that back to the client. Yeah, yeah, and a yeah. lot of the time it's quick wins. Yeah. So it and, just and, kind of... And the marketing... Uh, the 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 job of the agency was it more on the media side or like uh, it was other? it was CRM CRM it was, it was okay direct, so kind of direct marketing, direct marketing. type of uh, yeah. agency okay. yeah and the CEO of the agency at that time had been in the industry for a very long time you know back to the days where they were calling people up and mm-hmm. you were doing postal yeah like paper paper marketing so he was like super old school but he had all these like really good foundations in place yeah and that's the agency just kind of grew from there really. Yeah, I think UK market has been at the forefront of this direct marketing evolution, maybe along with the US, yeah. kind of two big uh, thought leaders in the area for many, yeah. many decades before it became cool, so to speak. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I think there was, yeah, there's, there's some stuff I've read from like the 90s and like, obviously the channels are different, yeah. but the, the principles, are, principles the are exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I, and I like that. It's a, it's a nice kind of continuity. Very nice. So let's then uh, talk a little bit about what are the key differences that you noticed when you went from being a consultant to working internally. I've also yeah. done the same thing, by the way, in my career. Okay, so you know, and the yeah. reason why yeah. it, uh, I wanted to try is that the client would always delay the decision for, for months. And uh-huh. I was really sick of waiting for them to decide and do a more risky idea yeah. and then I joined uh, like okay now I'm deciding and uh, pretty quickly all the bets started to go sour you know like okay maybe it doesn't work so it's not so easy so what was your experience like 
so yeah, I, before when I was consulting, I was I was told by my my colleagues and my mentor at the time, like when you go client side, it's going to be slower. Uh huh. Things internally, are slower. internally, okay. it's going to mm-hmm. be slow when you go to work for the client, and especially in like these big legacy organizations, telcos, banks, it's slower. And I've really, I've, I have noticed that, you know, it, there's a lot more alignment that's required. Okay. And, you know, the consulting I was doing was, it was strategic consulting. So you'd go in, you'd, you'd get to know the business, you'd work with stakeholders and you'd come back with this grand master plan and it would look great on slides yeah. and yeah. it makes so much sense and it's backed up by data and you present it, but then you have to go and deliver it. And that's what I was missing when I was consulting. And mm-hmm. I really wanted to add that experience. Um, and I think I can say it. Now you did. I tell you, I've definitely kind of lived that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's an incredible learning curve. Very, yeah, but very different, much slower, much more stakeholder management involved. Yeah, very, very different. So I know that Intelia, you started with designing the operating model for CRM. Maybe you can describe what that is. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so when I was brought in, I was basically brought in to do what I was doing uh, consulting side, which was, yeah, to design the operating model for scaling up personalization and uh, using the platforms that we have to do so. Um, and we did that for a year and we took it from, you know, we have basically no, no, no real automation set up, no real personalization to launching numerous uh, new communications that were automated and triggered and started measuring the impacts of these. Uh, and then the question came, okay, so what does the next phase look like? How do we, how do we make this business as usual? You know, um, and the answer to that was the creation of this this the CRM team uh, and really industrializing this idea of continuous optimization. So taking a journey or a campaign or whatever it is, looking at data, working with the business, pipeline of hypotheses and opportunities, do it, deliver it. Does it work? No, yes. Keep going, just keep going. So really industrializing and churning out mm-hmm. the optimization. So you kind of designed the master plan of... Uh making that happen. Yeah. And then uh, Talia asked you to run it. So yeah. <laughs> so what was it like? <laughs> did you spot any uh, significant gaps in the original design or actually did it turn out to be exactly as you planned? Uh, yeah, of course. There were, of course, yeah. there, there, were, there, were, there were gaps. I think um, the whole idea of, of like formalizing this team was that we would improve our speed to market and improve mm-hmm. our ability to, as I said, look at the data, make decisions and go. Uh, and just test, test, test. Uh, and definitely there were gaps. I think it's one thing to have a, a new team set up, but then you have to communicate that with the business. Uh, and our, our business stakeholders, particularly our commercial stakeholders, are really important in this. So it's one thing for us to go, hey guys, we're now ready to do all this testing. Like, let's do it. It's another thing for to get the business thinking, okay, how do we, like you need to educate them about what's possible and what could be done and what data we have. That was a gap I spotted originally that, mm-hmm. yeah, we've been kind of working to, yeah, it's, it's all about collaboration with the business and it's a journey and yeah, we've been working to, to fill it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as we think about the channels, many of them have become increasingly digital over time and there has been uh, an ongoing digital transformation now for decades, essentially. Mm. And you kind of joined Elia and push that, accelerate that process forward. Uh, can you tell us, is this something that is still relevant today as a topic? Are companies already way beyond that and looking for the next thing? Or are there many things that still need to be done to kind of complete this transformation? On uh, digital channels, yeah, specifically? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely not done. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I think there are some constraints as well with 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 the market itself. I think it's one thing for a business in, in Lithuania, like a big one, to have a, an ambition for digital growth. And if we say digital growth is revenue in that channel, uh, for example, um, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. There's, there's market constraints. I don't think the market is as mature as you know, the markets I've come from. And so it's a lot of it's about educating customers. Um, but then from the business side, if we think about the functionality that we can offer online, which is also hugely important, you know, this is a huge part of digital shift. Um, yeah, there's always work to be done there as well. I think there's there's emerging uh, trends and customer trends and customer needs that need to be reflected in that online experience for that that transition to be successful. Um, and it's not just uh, chatbots or things like that. They are important, but it's not just that. It's just, it's about the whole experience, making it seamless, reducing the clicks, uh, making sure that customers can get what they need easily, that they're not, there's no friction in that experience. And if they do have any questions, how best to service that question. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily a call, for example. So I definitely think there's a way to go, but I think there's market constraints as well. Uh, and I'm I'm always reminding myself that, you know, Telia, we have ambitious, ambitious digital targets, but we need to remind ourselves as well that we operate in a market that isn't as digitally mature, and that should that should yeah, always be factored should, we in. We should accommodate that. Yeah. So comparing sure. uh, Lithuania and UK, what's the difference in digital maturity or adoption? You would say. I think in the UK, uh, there's there's obviously a generational split here, mm -hmm. but I think in the UK, I think that generational split is much more weighted towards digital. And, and by mm -hmm. that, I mean that, you know, my dad, for example, uh, I hope he watches this. <laughs> my dad, for example, he is like very digitally savvy, mm -hmm. but he's, I think he's over 60 now. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's very digitally savvy. So he'll use self-service for, for any service he has, banking, yeah. tel tel telecommunications provider, and he gets what he wants and it's very transactional and that's all good. I think if you look at the Lithuanian market, that that uh, shift comes down. Mm -hmm. And I think the people who are as digitally savvy as that, it's a smaller group. Um, it's not exclusive to younger people. I mean, we've, we've actually asked our customers, you know, uh, would you use digital services in future? We've done direct surveying and we didn't really see this correlation between uh, older people saying no and younger people saying yes. So yeah. I, I I don't think there is that split, but there's a difference between what people say and what they do. And I think in Lithuania, mm -hmm. definitely the, the digital shift is for the younger generation. And I think that that will get larger, that ratio, mm -hmm. but um, it'll it'll take time. And I, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's that, for That's for a very, very interesting uh, way of looking at it from the generational point of view, because... Actually, when I was just in the last years of high school, when the internet appeared here, mm. and now I'm 45. So that means that basically in 10 years time or 20 years time, this will be the, the older segment, right? Mm -hmm. And they're yeah. all completely digitally savvy. So mm -hmm. actually the transformation has another decade or two to run, mm -hmm. and then you gradually become, I don't know what, like 80% digital probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that digital savvy. So it's actually like a 30-year project now all combined. Wow, yeah. that's a really long time. I think many companies, when they started, they thought, well, it's it's yeah, it's a couple it. of years and we're done. Exactly, yeah. 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 yeah, we have this saying in, in English, like, you can take the horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Yeah. And maybe there's a similar one in Lithuanian, but... That's exactly what's happening, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, but it doesn't mean that companies shouldn't be ready for that future. Mm -hmm. That functionality should be in place for when that generation mm -hmm. 
the, that that segment, that digital savvy segment, does and get bigger. Yeah, when when this generation comes, they're of course like incredibly demanding. Everything has to work perfectly, and so on and so forth. Definitely, Absolutely. definitely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so let's talk a little bit about the variety of channels and which of the channels actually you uh, like most to work with. So maybe you can just uh, run through the list of the channels that you're using today and uh, kind of give a short assessment. Works, doesn't work, needs improvement, just in general, like thinking about yeah. the general uh, specifics of the channel, for example, email or mobile app mm -hmm. and things like that. So I think that, you know, the main thing, and I guess this is evidence of what we just discussed, one of the key channels for us is still the assisted channel. It's still going to be the phone. Still USSD or? The assisted channel, like the, the, assisted. the, the person mm -hmm. on the phone. Okay. St of course. So and like the call center, the call basically. Center, the mm -hmm. call center. And mm -hmm. that will never go away. Um, it's about shift. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think for now, this is the this is a core channel for us because mm -hmm. it's not just about driving revenue and upselling customers or whatever. It's also about servicing customer needs properly and effectively. And there's no better way to do that than yeah. just have someone on the phone. So we always need to remember that. But I think increasingly we see channels like email, like SMS, like app push, with, with especially with the younger generation, uh, can have similar results in terms of engagement, not necessarily outcomes, mm -hmm. but engagement. And by that, I mean, people will read emails, people will read SMSs, people will read out push notifications, um, uh, and they will engage with it. Doesn't necessarily mean they will purchase something or they will get what they need from mm -hmm. it. Um, and yeah, I, you know, whilst, as I said, Telia has these ambitious digital, digital plans, we need to remember that the most effective way of servicing a customer or selling to a customer is typically over the phone mm -hmm. with, with someone there. Uh, that will change as customer trends shift and people realize, or, you know, people get older, they don't want to talk to someone. They just want what they want and that's, and it's there for them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think uh, the assisted channel is important and it's just about accommodating that shift you know we just have to be there and we have to be ready for customers to make that shift and that segment will get bigger the functionality has to be there so that that's a seamless transition mm -hmm. for our customer base um, I'll, I'll make yeah. a, a small comment here i think it's a super important thing that you mentioned the very traditional telephone as as the first channel because when you think about uh, the digital companies today they even have no idea that it's needed because they're working with a demographic that doesn't use this channel. At the same time, if you're trying to expand your appeal and go after the more uh, well-off, more mature, affluent segment, typically the older people, you actually have to build up a super robust uh, yeah. call center. Yeah. And uh, if I look at some of the struggles in our market right now with companies like uh, independent electricity providers, who set up everything online and the typical buyer is a slightly older person and they have huge customer service issues mm -hmm. because they don't use the digital channel. There's complaints in the press. I can't reach you. I can't talk to anyone mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And mm -hmm. Telia as a company that's been in the market for, for, for as long as we can remember has this legacy, but it's actually a super important thing yeah, because it allows you to work effectively with that segment. Definitely. So I think it's a super important observation. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And like, you know, I've got an example in the, in the UK, there's, there's, there's a few like fully digital banks and I, I'm with one of them. And uh, this was like last year and uh, I wanted to close my account because I'm in Lithuania now and I wanted to speak to someone. Yeah. 
and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not young, but yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm yeah. not in the older yeah, segment, yeah. right? So I wanted to speak to someone and I couldn't. Yeah. And I just couldn't do it. And there was a chat bot and there was this really extensive FAQs. You could see they put a lot of effort into that yeah. customer journey, but it's not what I needed. And there was no option to do so. And I had to end up emailing them and, you know, even finding the email is difficult. Yeah. yeah. So I really think that, yeah, I, I just, I completely agree. That assisted channel is important, but at the same time, you have to realize that business, the business needs are changing operationally, operational expenditure, the, the targets will change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, businesses do want to become more streamlined and reduce investment in these channels. So in that case, let's be smart about it. Who do we offer mm-hmm. assisted, assisted channels to? At what point in the customer journey do we offer it? Yeah. And how do we know when it's bad enough for the customer to offer that? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. How do we know we've done everything? Yeah. Um, I think this is this is really important as well. Being being strategic about how you yeah, but it's, it's, I think it's a very very important observation that probably it has to stay there forever. Mm. I mean, because I so. there will be situations where you need to talk, and yeah. if you can't do it, your experience is ruined. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I can remember uh, Ryanair ticket cancellation uh, <laughs> <Ryanair>. woes. <laughs> And like, can I talk to someone? Please, and let me speak to someone. Unfortunately, yeah. you can, but the, the waiting is like for, I don't know, one hour on yeah. the phone. So the yeah. experience is super bad. That's it. And, yeah. and like, you know, we personalization is a massive topic, right? Like you, personalization is seen as like this, this silver bullet for, for, for customer experience. And it's definitely a big part. But why is it a silver bullet? Because personalization is knowing someone and mm-hmm. speaking to someone as if you know them. And that comes from, you know, back in the, back in the sixties, you go into a local shop, the, the, the guy or girl knows you in the shop. They say, oh, you're here for your baked beans, whatever. This is personalization. Exactly. Yeah. And now it's scaled and everyone's going, oh, so it's got to be digital, but let's not lose sight of what personalization is. Mm -hmm. Like it's still a huge part of the customer experience. This, this face to face, knowing who wants that and who doesn't want it Mm -hmm. uh, and when that's the important thing. I I think another very interesting train of thought we can develop is that if your uh, assisted channel, the call center, the people that you have can't be leveraged, personalized to the maximum, you're not uh, using the channel correctly. Mm. So you have to invest in that channel to be as personalized as possible. So they have to know everything and be able to assist you to the maximum. I think that's a very interesting uh, kind of uh, observation from that point, because Many times you just end up cutting the cost, reducing the quality, standardizing, introducing all kinds of operational KPIs, mm-hmm. but not think about personalization mm-hmm. as the main KPI. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, integrating that customer insight into that into those assisted channels and, you know, like literally it's hard. putting it yeah. on a screen, yeah. giving people, giving your front office access to these MBOs, these MBAs. This is really, this is yeah. really important. And uh, yeah, I tell you, we spend, we spend a lot of time doing that because we know that it's still an important channel. And as you say, mm-hmm. it always will be. What's the second best? Uh, I think obviously, you know, direct communication. So email and SMS, I, I think they're, they're very different channels between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is typically where my team work, you know, tra- more traditional kind of CRM channels, direct marketing channels. Um, Email and SMS, email works well. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, we as, as telco providers or essentially commodity providers have to remember that emails are emails. Uh, you can make the most beautiful email ever and it can be personalized uh, and it can be, a, you know, a newsletter that looks like your own personal brochure. 
but some people just don't read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's fine. That's okay. Uh, the same for SMS. I think uh, SMSs for me are slightly more, uh, what's the word? Probably you need to be more careful when you use SMSs mm-hmm. because you are directly intruding in someone's yeah. life that way. It's not like you open an app and you see an email, you there's yeah, a notification the, like, there, it lands in your inbox. Yeah. Uh, and also it's less rich content. So you have to be very exact and specific. Um, but I would say those those channels, uh, email, SMS, also work very well. Um, Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, email as a channel. Hmm. Is it declining in uh, use, in uh, conversion, or is it stable over the last many years that you're seeing it? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? No, I don't same? think it's getting worse. I, it's getting worse all the time. I don't think it's getting worse. I, okay. I, I mean, I've, you know, you've seen those articles, uh, email is dead. Yeah, you long know, live email. <laughs> I've, I've been reading those for years. Yeah. But it's not, it's not dead at all. It's not dead it's at all. It's basically flat. It's flat. Yeah, email okay. is email. It's still yeah. a very important channel. And uh, I really <clears throat> firmly believe that if you put the effort into making those emails relevant, mm-hmm. you do see the results. Like mm-hmm. you, you do see it. Um, and also there's a, excuse me, there's a halo effect with these emails as well. If you, if you get your customers used to the idea that every time they receive an email from you, it's relevant for them, mm-hmm. then that will have a lasting effect for years because customer will realize that your direct communications are also good. Yeah. I don't have to just call someone to get what I want. I know that if I open this, this newsletter or whatever you it is, find it there. I'll find what yeah. I need. Yeah. And what does that mean specifically? You know, it's, um, we're working really hard at Telia on making our newsletter comms like an own personal, mm-hmm. your own personal letter, like really. Yeah. MBO integration, uh, uh, targeted seg- segmented offers, yeah. uh, communications that are also designed to help your experience as a customer. Are you on self-service or are you not on self-service? If not, here's how to sign up for self-service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's how you pay your first bill. All of these things so that that newsletter becomes a, a one-stop shop almost. Yeah. Customers know that if they open it, they can they can get what they need. Um, and of course, the other benefit of that is that means that we don't have to over-communicate. Instead of sending lots to lots of people, we're sending really targeted quality mm-hmm. to lots of people. And I think that's a really important point as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, there's... Uh, a, a phrase of earned channel where you have like the attention mm. has been developed and mm. people have started paying attention to you and I think email is exactly that mm. you have to train the reader that you are providing value over yep. time and they'll open it next time or you can train it otherwise and they'll just stop uh, stop, exactly. stop using it you can go the other way yeah I you think, can go uh, both ways and if you think about this whole generational uh, aspect of it as well Email has been adopted by the internet early adopters. That was the first main messaging channel. So basically, email brings its own demographic, which is like, you know, the 45 to whatever, 35-year-old. That's the group which is the heavy users of email. Mm. And uh, then the younger generation, they're using something else, right? But uh, if you want to work with that demographic, then email is a vast and important channel. Yeah. And that's why it's stable, I think. When yeah. you're saying that it's stable, it works, it's yeah. probably because it just has its own loyal user base. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that that's a really good point you made there about uh, conditioning people the other way. Yeah. So I think Egidius uh, was mentioning yeah. this on the uh, another podcast, but if you 
condition your customers to think that that's just uh, an email with a load of stuff in that's not relevant for me because that's what the business wants to sell me, not yeah. what I want. It's really hard to win that back. Yeah. You know, and I'm not just talking about uh, like con- consent rates dropping. Yeah. I'm talking about like engagement dropping. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's really hard to get that back because once you've lost it, how in that yeah. very, because it's actually a very limited channel. You know, yeah. you're, you land in an inbox, you have a subject line. How do you get that back? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. very hard. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, like I said, at Telia, we're, we're very focused on making sure that's as personal as possible. Yeah. And, uh, and again, not just on the commercial side, but yeah. on the customer experience side generally. I would think that managing email as a channel with its own KPIs, sort of to protect it from being overused and so on, maybe is, is a little bit overlooked. I mean, with the call center, you have like SLAs and stuff like that, where you're monitoring the health of the channel mm. in terms mm. of service quality. Mm. Email maybe isn't quite there yet. Yeah. People tend to think, well, let's just, you know, spam the hell out of it and yeah. maximize the quarter. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's an interesting point. Uh, one thing I'll say, though, is that um, with email channel and, uh, well, not SMS, but with the email channel specifically, and I guess with app push as well, if you go into a meeting with uh, your business stakeholders and you start talking about engagement rates, they start to fall off. They don't know. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. because it's about outcomes. Yeah. Uh, I totally agree that we should be measuring uh, these kind of supplementary metrics, like it clicks, it opens, whatever. Um, and the same goes for like self-service channels as well. Like are people engaging with the traffic clicks? Mm-hmm. But ultimately it's about the outcomes. Um, and, and I've certainly found in my experience that as so long as you're tying this to outcomes and tying an increased, increased engagement rate to an increased conversion rate, it's all good. But if you're just focusing on that engagement, it gets really tough yeah, to yeah, 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 maintain yeah. the momentum in the channel. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about SMS. That's a very unusual channel, I would say. Mm-hmm. As you said, super sensitive, mm-hmm. super wide in reach, right? Mm-hmm. So you can talk to anyone. Is, is it declining? Is it growing? Is it stable? What is it like? Uh, well, I... I'm not sure about the the trend, the direction in which it's moving, but I can certainly to say that, you know, in the UK, it's used much less than it's used here. Okay. And that's that's just a, in my experience. Uh, I can also say that, you know, at Telia, we are looking to reduce the commercial activity in this channel mm-hmm. um, precisely because you can't, the content can't be as rich. Uh, you can be targeted, of course, but the content itself can't mm-hmm. be rich. Um, and, and uh yeah, I think it needs to be used really carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really good for our customers to see that you know um, they have a bill that's ready to pay, for example, and the, and the and the the size of that bill in an SMS, mm-hmm. for example, for most of our customers. It's not important for them to see that you know we want to we want to sell them a load of TVs this month because mm-hmm. we've got some TVs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> you know, and, and this is it. Yeah, uh, and you know we've worked really hard to to reduce. Uh, actually reduce the commercial activity in this channel. So it's kind of fit for a certain type of communication. Exactly. And if you go yeah. beyond that, it's it's a risky area. Exactly. Yeah. Because you unlike the email and and like the digital channels, the self-service channels, you can't make it that kind of personalized one-stop shop. Yeah. Because it's just a message. So I think it's really important to use it but wisely. But it's not email. You can't just send a message every day. I mean, people it, just exactly. scream at you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you can't with any of them. Yeah. But specific, yeah, especially with SMS, it's sensitive and it's just, you can't put what you need in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's for like important information that's genuinely helpful. Yeah. I don't think it's for, for selling necessarily. But what happens when SMS dies? You know, then you have to build up some sort of rich messaging channel for the future. 
So WhatsApp. How, how, how is the, <laughs> is it WhatsApp or is it the proprietary apps of, of the different I think providers? It's apps. I, th I think it's, I think it's going to be apps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think, uh, Increasingly, more and more people from more and more businesses will have the app for that business. Mm -hmm. And App Push, I think, is a, is a really, really exciting it channel. Works, it still yeah. is. I think yeah. it works. Um, you can be richer in the app, App yeah. Push, as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's the way to go. Yeah, I think uh, when push notifications appeared initially, there was like a, a surge of activity, overload, everyone pushing everything everywhere. Yeah. But now uh, you're in a situation where BBC app might push you a breaking news uh, notification mm -hmm. and it's valuable. It works. Mm -hmm. They don't abuse it. I get maybe one or two every other day. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cool. Yeah. It works. You, know, you know, it's a bad day when you get like five in one day. Yeah, it's like, like something is happening. Yeah. <laughs> something but it's going not, it's yeah. not really um, yeah. overused. So I yeah. think it kind of has started to find its niche yeah yeah definitely i think a, a live example i had uh, yesterday or day before uh, my app here uh, my bank sorry in, in lithuania they sent me a email and they sent me a app push at the same time mm -hmm. i get it they want to be omni-channel yeah but i do not need both it's of too those. much yeah and it, you know it appears on my screen yeah I, and it's the same message yeah, yeah. Oh, that's horrible yeah they need to know what i i read yeah. and actually for me i i prefer to read it in an email yeah especially if it's about banking or it's about new interest rates or whatever i want to yeah. read about it yeah yeah so email don't yeah. send me both mm -hmm. and i think this is important as well it's they're important channels but you need to know which one yeah, your yeah, customers yeah. want. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful example. And yeah. I think it's hard. I think it's actually hard to. It's not a simple case of if they're between the ages of thirty-five and fifty, we'll send them an email. If they're below the age of thirty-five, we'll send them an app push. Yeah. I don't think it's that simple. Uh, you have to look at the individual engagement yeah. and start segmenting that way. And it's, it's a lot more complicated than it looks. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, technology. So all of this messaging and so on, it needs tools. Mm -hmm. So which tools have you found to be uh, kind of proven by, by, by time? Uh, what are you using yourself? Uh, yeah, so, I, you know, I think with marketing technology, you have this typical split of monolithic players like Salesforce and Adobe, and then you have this huge pool of best, like smaller players. That, um, uh, you know, for me, the, the tried and tested tools are, are the Salesforces and the Adobe's and even the like slightly smaller players like the Teliums, people like that, um, because they've been doing it for a while. They do the job well. There's lots of functionality there. Uh, and, and you can, the potential is quite high. Um, I think that when it comes to the monolithic players, the challenge is always, how do we get all of this stuff to work? Because mm -hmm. there's almost so much stuff in there. Yeah. You know, if you if you go to like a Salesforce conference or you read an Adobe uh, PDF that you've downloaded, I mean, it just blows your mind. Like we could do so much stuff. Yeah, you could almost do everything on it, but then it's just such a huge change. Yeah, yeah, massive. Yeah, massive. So adoption is a is a hard thing with the bigger monolithic platforms. For sure, mm -hmm. I think so. I think I think you need to get people up to speed about what's possible mm -hmm. and there's so much stuff and I, I really believe that MarTech players need to do a much better job of consulting their their customers on what's possible. Uh, there's a reason why, you know, a lot of the consulting I used to do was helping people get value out of the million, two million pound investments that yeah. they've made in a monolithic player yeah. yeah, because, you know, you spend so much time getting these things ready and it's often with the data yeah, I think uh, Ruta, on this a former colleague of mine on this this show, was mentioning that you you have to get the data in place, and only then 
Can you start generating some value? And I really believe that MarTech players need to do a better job of saying, hey guys, this is going to take some time because your data is all over the place or whatever. And this is where you should be focusing once you have your data in place, the mm-hmm. low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Prove to the business that this works. Otherwise, you know, your C-suite are looking at this investment and they're going, guys, we just spent it. It's but such a common yeah, problem. It's yeah. so common. Yeah. Which, which should be uh, implemented first when you think about it now? Should you focus first on fixing the data layer or is it okay to start with the platform and then sort of work backwards and go and fill in the data? Uh, it's a tricky one because you, you want to deliver value, but mm-hmm. you're not going to do that just working alone, on the data You layer. just can't do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, how I always uh, approach this uh, with clients, and I think at Telia as well in, in this experience, is you need to pick your battles with the data. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, a lot of the time people in the business have this vision and they say, right, we want to do this and that, and it's going to be awesome and it's going to be seamless and omnichannel and predictive. Great. It's good to have it. You need yeah. You need to have it. But then you need to pick your battles. Okay, so where are we going to go? And I think you need to take this kind of uh, modular approach. So pick really low-hanging fruit. You know, in in telco and banking, it's often uh, reducing unwanted calls or pushing people the digital side. Pick that, grab that data, just work on that. Be really laser-focused and then just deliver a bit of value. And then have this kind of step-by-step approach I don't think it's feasible to just work on the data mm-hmm. for two years without delivering any value off the back of it. Similarly, I don't think it's uh, valid to spend two million on a platform and, uh, and end up no just data. sending <laughs> and end up just sending the, yeah. the same stuff to people uh, yeah. that you were sending before. Maybe just in a couple of new channels. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This isn't this isn't acceptable. Yeah. So it's actually a fairly uh, tricky problem because Super you need tricky. to manage two sides of it mm-hmm. and have increments in both. Mm-hmm. Because easily you could spend two years just on the data and just on the platform itself exactly. and have nothing to show for it. Or four years combined together and exactly. kind of by then all the stakeholders have changed and the budget has been cancelled. I mean, this is a really interesting thing. Yeah. So so the, the average life of a CMO, and typically these investments are, well, increasingly they're coming from the CMO office. Yeah. The average life of a CMO is like two and a half years, in the UK at least. Super short. How are you, you going to... You won't see the, the, the investment come to yeah. fruition. Yeah, yeah like, yeah. oh, here's, here's our big, like, flagship program. We're going to completely revolutionize customer yeah. experience, and these are the tools. Uh, we're still waiting to deliver the, mm-hmm. the value that we promised. And, and the CMO is gone. He or yeah. she has gone off somewhere else. So kind of step-by-step, uh, use-case-by-use-case would be the recommended uh, yeah. implementation approach. And I really, yeah. like I said, this is, this is where the MarTech players need to step up. Mm-hmm. But I totally get it. Like, you know, oh, shock horror, Salesforce have just just sold something for two million. Yeah, yeah. And now they're not really that fussed about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's a whole market around consultancies and businesses that help c- customers do this. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I think, yeah, it's not, not a healthy and sustainable way of it's not sustainable uh, implementing things. Yeah. And, it, and eventually it will drop off because people will just say, you know, mm-hmm. what, what is going on? You know? Yeah. So I think that's a very nice uh, way of uh, kind of describing that landscape. What are some of the changes or the new new tools, new concepts coming into the technology picture nowadays? Um, I think, you know, the big trend for me that I see is, is this idea of predictiveness mm-hmm. or being predictive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means utilizing your, your data. You know, so we're not talking about these businesses that have their data everywhere. They have it 
mostly in one place. They're able to build models mm -hmm. on top of that data. And then for the MarTech, the, the question is, how can you implement this yeah. insight? We know this customer is about to churn in three months, or we have a high degree of confidence. Uh, we know that this customer is now highly likely to go for this, this cross-sell offer. Um, how can you implement that in the MarTech space? Yeah. And that requires integration. You know, it's one thing to have everything sat here in, uh, you know, in AWS and you have some models built on it. That's great. Then you need to pipe that through to the platforms yeah. that actually surface that. And then you have to work out, okay, so where does this fit with everything else? And I think that's the, that's the key question from, from MarTech in yeah. this space is how do we realize the value of all of the predictive modeling that we're doing, lots of businesses are doing, and how do we realize that yeah. and, and put it in front of customers in the right way? Yeah. So I think that's kind of one angle uh, to support the models you usually bring in either uh, data science specific add-ons, things mm -hmm. like feature stores and, and stuff like that, or more marketing oriented things like customer data platforms yeah. that kind of try to consolidate the data in one space. Mm -hmm. And for me, the interesting piece here is that this is a data set which uh, right now nobody owns in a way. Mm -hmm. the, the, there is like, okay, the finance team owns its financial reporting data and maybe the operations team has its own network data and stuff like that. But for marketing, someone has to own the data as well, like the customer data. So, mm -hmm. so we end up uh, with marketing becoming the owner of a quite unique data set a very, very valuable one. Very yeah. valuable one. And all of the governance processes around that, all of the definitions and everything, it's just not there. You need to create from almost from scratch. So what was what is your experience on, on, on this uh, topic? Well, the, that, that customer... Kind of building the customer data. Who owns it? Yeah, that's a really good question uh, because you have different teams that own yeah. different data sets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, is it time for marketing to kind of declare that we own it because we need it, obviously? I think I think so, yeah. But but the the challenge that you have then is that lots of people want to use that data set. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, data science, especially mm -hmm. building these models, they want to own that data set, and they often have the the, the most complete one. Uh, and I think, the, I guess, the main principle here is that you have one. 360 degree view or single customer view, whatever you want to call it. And that's made available to separate channels. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that you don't have to build your own data set in your MarTech stack, because you probably do. You know, the way these MarTech platforms work, you have to build the data sets into them and then utilize them. Yeah. But they need to be coming from one source. Yeah. Uh, and I think um, often with these uh, big, big, large scale transformation programs, you end up with lots of different customer views. There is no single source. Yeah. And you're all working off a different page, um, so I really think that yeah, the whole the whole idea around data warehousing and making sure that you've got that bit nailed is really important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you, like I said, you have to pick your battles. You have to pick the data that's valuable. Make sure it's strategically aligned, and go from there. Sort of build the customer 360 degree view step by step. Yeah, kind of if have the right years, architecture, but don't try to boil the ocean. Just Exactly. Yeah. Do that, a that's, small, that's completely small yeah. piece of it. And make sure that when you are uh, adding new columns into that data set that it's strategically aligned. Yeah. Okay, we're adding this column because we want to do X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that will deliver the value. And then that circle continues. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's very, it's hard. It's, it's, it's very hard. Yeah, yeah, I think that I, I really uh, 
hate and also like the single source of truth uh, concept. It's a great selling idea. Yeah, because it's simple to understand. Yeah, it's simple it? to understand. Yeah. Yes, we need to yeah. have one single source. But when you implement it, it's actually not a single source. It's never been done. Yeah. <laughs> you always you have, have to copies. take chunks out and copy yeah. it here and copy so it there. So it's more like, a, I don't know, it's, it's a rallying cry. Uh, but uh, yeah, the reality is that you end up with some sort of IT architecture that supports flexibility. Mm -hmm. And that means you might have a copy for marketing that has a few definitions slightly differently defined from what the finance needs or maybe other teams yeah. need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely, definitely. You need to be uh, kind of pragmatic here. Yeah. I completely agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and the CDP point is interesting because uh, I think, uh, you know, we have it in our notes, right? Like CDPs are... The promise of the CDP is great. And I have seen examples, particularly in the banking sector, where people are using it well. But the one area where the CDP has fallen down is the promise of easy connection or mm -hmm. plug and play, yeah. as they call it. Just plug it in. Yeah. And we'll bring all your data together. Yeah. We'll stitch it together across all these channels, third party, first party. Yeah. Never works like that. Yeah. It never works like that. And so even that requires this step-by-step -step approach. Where's the value? Low-hanging fruit. Let's work from there and slowly build. And then you end up with a, a copy of a data of set and a CDP. Set. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the kind of very tricky part, which I see with customer data platforms right now, is that the technology is usually in the cloud. Mm. You have all the best, fast things. It's scalable. It works. But you're bringing first-party data there. So the risks from privacy, security, and so on are also increasing. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like a very uh, tricky balance. Do you want super great functionality with risks or do you want to have much less risk, have something in-house on-prem, but really maybe behind in terms of capabilities by five years or 10 years? And may limit you scaling going yeah. forward as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's like a super, years. super tricky uh, trade-off. Yeah. It is, it mm -hmm. is. And I, I, I can see why everyone's going cloud-based. Like, why, why wouldn't you? Because mm -hmm. everyone's talking about the future. But I do think there's this kind of initial dip of, yeah. ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We need to learn to manage those risks and yeah. uh, understand it better. Mm -hmm. Okay, very nice. So we touched the channels uh, piece. We touched the technology piece a little bit. Let's talk about why we're doing it. Uh, let's talk about the customer. And... Uh, what is your, I think we're, we all agree that we're doing it for the sake of being more customer-centric. Uh -huh. What's your definition of customer-centricity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think that for me, like, well, it's, it's putting the customer first, right? That's, yeah. <laughs> that's what it is. Uh, what does it really mean? I think being customer-centric is understanding your customer's needs and making sure that you are delivering on those. Right. And, and for me, that means putting your money where your mouth is. Uh, if you want to deliver an exceptional customer experience that is customer-centric, sometimes that means, well, there's, there's cost involved, mm -hmm. right? And that cost could be uh, investment in something or it could be uh, discounting something or whatever. Stopping um, some practices that are maybe some practices a that bit aren't annoying. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, there's always cost attached to it. So if you ask me what customer-centricity is, it's putting the customer first, yes. But what does that mean? It means putting your money where your mouth is and making those changes and investing in those changes. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you, could, you can talk about customer centricity and say, right channel, right time, right place. Great. Everyone gets it. Yeah. Um, but then 
you need to be able to make sure that you are able to measure what that customer centricity means for you, the business, uh-huh. and for your customer. I think measurement is a super interesting topic. And of course, customer centricity is very vast and very, very hard to kind of pin down. Mm-hmm. How, how would you measure it? Uh, I mean, there's, there's loads of ways. I, I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of the time when people talk about customer centricity, they think uh, customer satisfaction or mm-hmm. like MPS. So if we're being customer centric, then we're being, uh, you know, we're making our customers happy. Yeah. And yes, we want to make customers happy, uh, but that's not. That's not customer centric, you know. That's it, a piece of the picture. That's yeah. uh, you know, yeah. if if, if uh, Telia did that, we wouldn't be in business in three years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because uh, you run out of money, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so how do you uh, combine these things? Uh, and and that's why I think people talk a lot about customer lifetime value mm-hmm. because uh, happier customers are stickier customers. They last for longer. So uh, this this CLV approach is is founded on this promise that this like a social contract almost, which is mm-hmm. if you make me happy as a customer, mm-hmm. I will stay with you for longer. Mm-hmm. That means more revenue for you over the longer term, the next three, mm-hmm. five, eight years. So, so, so you CLV's would argue basically that CLV captures pretty much every single aspect of it over so. the long term. I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. Because, um, you know, if you, if you do the modeling and you try and understand what drives CLV, mm-hmm. there's lots of different key, key drivers to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just uh, like... Um, you know, the services owned or the, the, the products purchased in the past. It's customer satisfaction. It's how often that customer is going to call us. It's all of these things. Yeah. So I think CLV captures it quite nicely. But it, mm-hmm. yeah, it's based on this one thing. Happier customers are longer serving customers, longer lasting mm-hmm. customers. Mm-hmm. Very, very, uh, I think very, very valuable input there. Mm. So hard to w- measure though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, never, never perennial topic. Yeah. But uh, then let's talk a little bit about, uh, is it hard for a company to decide to be more customer centric? So have you, have you seen uh, companies struggling to move in that direction? Because there's always like the financial aspect of it. We have some quarterly targets and uh, if we cancel this, uh, annoying uh, hidden fee will not make the target. So have you seen difficulties going in that, in that direction or is this something that is usually an easy sell for the top management? Uh, I think it's always an easy sell. Mm-hmm. I don't think any businesses have trouble deciding they want okay. to be customer centric because it's great, right? You, yeah. you look at a few decks and you think, awesome. But yeah, the implementation is a completely different ball game mm-hmm. um, because it's about how much money you put where your mouth is. Yeah. Like um, you can do like uh, very shallow changes to the way your business operates. You can, uh, you know, try and be a bit more targeted or segmented with your, your mm-hmm. offers. Um, you can delete, uh, erase some hidden fees or whatever, as you said. But if you really think about it, uh, what does being customer centric mean? In our legacy telco businesses and, and banking businesses, you have different service managers or owners in the business. The customer has one wallet we have five people all yeah. vying for that wallet, yeah. that one wallet. Um, so really customer centricity means it's what this customer wants now. And that means no, Mr. or Mrs. Uh, you know, broadband, you're not, you're not getting this revenue yeah. because this is what the customer wants. And that has a really huge knock-on impact for oh, yeah. the whole planning process. You know, I think we've discussed this yeah. before in the past and I know it's conversations that are happening in lots of big businesses is, okay, customer centric, great, but we have all these uh, portfolio managers, products. How are we going to plan this? How are we going to forecast this? Um, And I think that's where the the challenge challenge is. And, uh, you know, speaking frankly, 
we we haven't solved this issue yet. Uh, in my experience, I haven't seen a business that has mm-hmm. solved this issue yet, especially in this legacy uh, legacy sector where there's things have been done a certain way for a very long time, and it works. Yeah, ish. But the the shift to being more customer centric and and moving the business in that direction, it's a long process, and yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. anyone's. I think especially the telecom industry has a very specific starting point where you own all of the products like voice and SMS. They're yours. You're producing them. And so you have to manage the margin on those products and so on. Sort of like an in-house factory producing Mm -hmm. the products and then you're selling them. And there's always like this internal uh, stakeholder of no, let's not be more customer-centric because my production cost is X and I just can't go there. If you look at retail, for instance, they're not producing 80, 90% of the products that they're selling. Mm-hmm. They're just, someone else is making them. So, so they're super attuned to what the customer wants, mm-hmm. but the business itself is now a much more, much lower margin business. It's much lower margin. So, yeah. so it's, it's like a pretty long margin. shift uh, yeah. and pretty big transformation. Yeah. But maybe let's go back a little bit uh, to, to what you mentioned about the business uh, requirements and customer centricity. Maybe you have an example uh, that springs to mind of where it was a hard decision to become more customer centric. And maybe you can give advice of when you became more customer centric or w- another example where you decided not to be more customer centric. So maybe let's protect that revenue. We know it's a compromise, but let's just keep it. So maybe something comes to mind. I think there are many companies struggling in this area and it would be yeah. very interesting to hear. Yeah, I think uh, I can give a, like a, a more basic example mm-hmm. uh, for, for where we've, we've compromised with the business. Yeah. And I, I'm really careful with these examples that I don't couch it in terms of customer versus business because that's not what no, it no, is. No. It's yeah. a, it's a, but you know, uh, internally, we had a, a situation last year where one of our, um, one of our kind of category managers they were below their target for, yeah. for the quarter. And yeah. there was a macroeconomic uh, factor in that. There's loads of stuff, but below the target. And we were asked to send a big campaign batch yeah. SMS. Yeah. Uh, and the reason it was SMS is because uh, for this particular category, that's what's traditionally worked. Worked. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so we, we, we sent the, the campaign. And uh, because sometimes you have to be flexible mm-hmm. and this isn't customer centric. This, mm-hmm. was a, this was an offer. We needed to hit some targets. We sent it to a group of customers. The segment was not very well defined. Mm-hmm. You know, men and women under the age of 35 with a dog in wellness. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> and, and we sent it out um, and it didn't work from a statistical perspective. So mm-hmm. if you look at the the performance in the target group versus the control group statistically significant. There was no, there was no incremental yeah. uplift yeah. there. But old habits die hard, yeah. and it's really tricky. So, for me, with this kind of constant journey, you always have to bring the data back to your stakeholders uh-huh. and say, "Look, this didn't work again." And it's a it doesn't mean that it's just going to stop, but yeah. you have to keep going. So that's kind an of gradually of, educate the, the the business stakeholders that let's not push in that direction anymore because it's not working. It's not working. Yeah, it's yeah. just too big. It's just not working. Yeah. So so that's an example of where mm-hmm. yeah I'd say we've been less customer centric and we mm-hmm. had to compromise. Where you know at Telia where we're being much more customer centric now is in the way we uh, prioritize our offers, and mm-hmm. I'm talking specifically here about our MBO mm-hmm. engine that's delivered. We are now getting to a point where the MBO engine is starting to prioritize these offers based on you know various different factors and 
we are implementing those directly into our communications. So I'd say so far, we're trying not to apply too many business levers to these things. We just want to see how our customers are reacting, what, what impact that's having. What um, kind of the NBO rules are designed mostly from the customer and needs uh, point exactly. of view rather than the business targets and like, yeah, so on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think this this is a, a challenge that's going to grow and grow because that catalog yeah. uh, of, of offers is going to become a catalog of actions, yeah. not just offers. So how do you start building the business rules around these to ensure that we are delivering value for the business yeah. and we're delivering value for customers? This is going to be a, a real challenge. But I think this is where... This is the the leap of faith in customer centricity. Yeah. You have to take that leap of faith. And I think that because it drives customer lifetime value, going back to the measurement, you see the results of that in a year or two's time. Yeah. And it's a leap of faith for businesses. It really is. Because you're not going to see the instant results. Yeah. And you know, we we've spoken about like, oh, we've got a new Martech platform and, and saying how difficult it is to implement a couple of small use cases and show a small uplift somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard, but Think about broader, yeah. think about proving customer yeah. lifetime value yeah. and this that this is working. Really, really a leap of faith for, yeah. for businesses. Yeah. So basically what, what you're saying is that it's super hard to define even like on a business case level uh, what this uh, should achieve, right? Or, I, or do you have like a number in mind when you're saying we will go there uh, in the customer-centric direction that will... The target is, I don't know, 10% increase in CLV or something like that. I think that, so so yeah, we, we will have targets in, mm-hmm. in terms of CLV over mm-hmm. the next three years. Uh, and this is very much the strategy to get there. Mm-hmm. But the challenge is that you don't know how how quickly the dial will move. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. it's a leap it's of a faith, long-term. it's yeah. new, yeah. Uh, and it takes time. So yeah, it, I, I, that's, I guess that's my main point. It's based on this promise that happier customers are stickier ones, but it's a leap of faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, very nice. So I think we touched on this uh, customer centricity and the hard conflicts that happen in the organization. Um, maybe you can share some uh, tips or tricks for companies just maybe somewhere in the journey. What would you do to make the journey easier or maybe easier to communicate internally, to sell it to the stakeholders? I think... Um yeah. How, how would you organize the perfect customer centricity rollout? Um, the, the main thing I would say is that, so you need to have the vision really clearly defined. Mm-hmm. And, you, and, to, and the reason you need that is because you need buy-in, from, not just from your C-suite, but from your just your people, the mm-hmm. people you're working with every day. You need to get everyone bought in. So that's the, that's the first thing. It needs to be crystal clear. Um, then you need to be empirical. So and mm-hmm. by that, I mean, uh, scientific in your approach, bring the data to the table. Mm-hmm. And quite often, like the example I mentioned with this big uh, uh, mm-hmm. send out that we did, quite often that's about proving that things don't work rather than that they do work. Mm-hmm. Changing old habits, but you have to have data. Mm-hmm. If you can't show, you know, uh, an incremental impact of whatever you're doing, that's your evidence mm-hmm. for whether you should or shouldn't be doing it. So I think um, the vision, uh, the, the measurement side and being empirical uh, and also, it's a bit more fluffy, but I would say that you don't need to know how you're going to get there. You know, it's very tempting to have this huge vision and then come up with a roadmap for like three years. And like, how often have you seen a roadmap delivered exactly as it looked over three years? Never. Never. <laughs> Never. Um, 
so uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of good mm-hmm. is what i would say mm-hmm. is is you, you don't need it doesn't need to be perfect you just need to go you mm-hmm. just need to start doing it bring the data have the vision bring the data bite off the small chunks that you can handle prove it works get buy in mm-hmm. and then start building out your broader strategy for customer centricity because mm-hmm. it covers loads of things data analytics channels communication all of these areas mm-hmm. need to be kind of mapped out and aligned and in uh, telco specifically they're typically siloed still these these departments and they need to come closer together it's not going to happen overnight yeah so for the for anyone else on this journey and there are loads my my tips would be crystallize the vision measure what you're doing and then start using that to bring people on board mm-hmm. get the people involved um because then uh, for me i think the the journey kind of takes care of itself once you have the momentum mm-hmm. how important is the cultural element in this so meaning more customer centric culture and how do you begin to kind of plant the seeds and grow it uh, i would say it's the most single most important thing mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at businesses like Spotify, for example, as an example I always use, their culture is superb in this this mm-hmm. place. I would say because they've 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 embedded this culture of we are customer obsessed, right? We just want to do whatever's best for the customer. Uh, they've linked that with the value that they're generating as a business, and there's this this culture of um, they have permission to fail, they mm-hmm. have permission to try and test. And I think for me, that's at the heart of these these big uh, customer centricity transformations. Is you, you're not going to know how it's all going to work. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to think that something's going to work really well, and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. You need to give people permission to fail. Um, so I think that the culture thing is really hard, and that changing that culture actually just comes from the top down. I believe you really need to have the C-suite or whoever's backing this program needs to fully believe. That it's going to work mm-hmm. and give people the permission to to fuck up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> If I can say yeah, that, I think that's that's a very uh, very important aspect. Actually, the permission to fail because usually when you're implementing a big transformation program, everything is planned. You have the steps, the milestones, and so on. And any deviations is not really acceptable. Yeah. But here you're starting an entirely different uh, type of transformation where actually you would basically expect to fail most of the time. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the entire purpose of to eliminate all the things that don't work. Yeah. And then just tune into the customer a lot more. Definitely. And that process Definitely. is a, a trial and error process because if you knew it, then you would be doing it already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you uh, if the question was how to embed that culture, the best possible way to do it is to just show results. Mm-hmm. So start like a small start squad small. team that that's just Yeah. doing it and then radiate from there yeah and mm-hmm. there's different ways you can set up a small like kind of crack team of like mm-hmm. uh, cross-functional specialists and just say hey go off and do this or you can do a kind of big bang where you uh, kind of redesign the kind of structure and the mm-hmm. ways of working and say right we're now doing this different ways and it works differently for different people but i would say yeah um st- start small pick the laser focus on the areas where you know you can have an impact mm-hmm. and get get that impact done reducing unwanted inbound calls, uh, increasing self-service signups, cross-selling, you know, showing an uplifting cross-sell mm-hmm. performance against the control group, whatever it is, get that done, yeah. show it to the business, communicate it widely, and then go from there. I think How it's really important. How do you pick the area to focus on? What would you ad- well, advise? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you have to start with uh, the data. Mm-hmm. You have to start with 
you need to speak with the people in your business and maybe even customers. Mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, typically in, in the sort of complaints and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, mm -hmm. speak to people on the front line. Like where, where, where are we struggling? Mm -hmm. Where are you struggling as, as a, as the uh, inbound call center? And what do you hear from customers? Like mm -hmm. where are our customers struggling? Um, of course you have to align that with what the business wants to do as well. Yeah. So, you know, you can't just decide you're going to do something because a couple of customers yeah. complained about it. Align it. But I would start with, yeah, customer pain points and speak to the people who are on the front line speaking to those customers yeah, daily because yeah. they're the ones who can tell you where you have a big impact. Sort of prioritize the customer pain points, prioritize the business uh, initiatives and then kind of do the matching between yeah. the two and something will uh, will click. And, or maybe pick one of each, you know? Yeah. Pick a kind of more like customer-oriented one and then maybe pick a, a more commercial-oriented one. oriented one. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and I think that's a good way to go about it. Okay, thank you very much. I think this is very, very uh, useful, useful perspective. So maybe uh, I think we're kind of nearing the end of, of our session. Very, very interesting, very insightful. But before I let you go, um, tell me what you do to kind of get away from work. I know you were growing some tomatoes recently. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's the uh, thing, maybe tomatoes. something <laughs> else. But just what, what is it that uh, kind of lets you relax? Uh Well, you know, I have a I have a, a young family. I have two small kids. They're both under the age of five. Um, so it's quite intense. Yeah. So, you know, when I get home, it's not... It's not <laughs> That's it. <laughs> the second job starts, yeah. I guess. Um, you know, for me, I, I love to play tennis. I'm a big tennis fan. Uh, sport, I think, is very important. Exercise. Um, I, I play chess. I'm learning oh, that's, to play that's the, a lot. Yeah. Yeah, chess. But, you know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not particularly good, but yeah. it's, I like the strategy element. And, and uh, I like to... I'm learning piano. So anything where my mind has to be completely focused on something else, you know, when you're playing tennis, you're just focusing on this little fluffy ball. You, you, and you can't think only, about the tomorrow's presentation. <laughs> no, it's the only thing. Yeah, and you yeah. find that after you've played tennis, you come back to this presentation and maybe you have a different yeah, yeah, different yeah. view. So for me, for me, the whole idea is just switching off completely. I mm -hmm. need to focus on something. That's that's how I get away from it. Very nice. So things that get, get your focus completely away from work. Yeah, uh -huh. I, I need to like just completely shut that bit off. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I find it helps with the perspective as well when you come back to a problem or whatever. It's it's handy. Yeah, yeah. I think that that re resonates with me as well. Like a lot of activities that I like outside of work are where you kind of enter the state of flow and completely forget. Uh, What exactly. time it is, and yeah. it's just like, oh, it's part. like 3 a.m. Yeah. Maybe it's not time to go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and I just on that point, I would say sleep as well is so key. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like sleeping as much as I can. I've yeah. really learned the power of that recently. Like, try and get the eight hours. I think it really helps. <laughs> Actually, let's just uh, sidetrack on that a little bit. Have you uh, been using any personal tracking devices, things like smartwatches for the steps and the quality of sleep? What's your. I haven't. I haven't got a smartwatch. Uh -huh. I, I use uh, um, uh, the the sleeping app on my phone, uh -huh. uh, which basically tells me, you know, it tells you when you're entering into like REM sleep and these uh -huh. kinds of things. So that's quite useful, and it also wakes you up in when you're in your lighter sleep cycle. I, I feel okay, what it's nice. called, yeah. but that's good because you know I'm terrible in the morning. Yeah, yeah I wake yeah. up. Meaning the morning is a very confusing, dark place for me. So <laughs> especially so, in Lithuania. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, in January. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, waking up. Feeling better is is a good, uh, cool. good thing. For me, it has been quite a big transformation because the watch tells you exactly the quality of your sleep the previous night. And you can say, okay, well, I drank a couple of uh, glasses of wine and then the sleep quality uh, declined. Yeah. 
And yeah. like, okay, that's a pretty, like data-driven correlations about your own life is just a kind of just direct carryover from this work that we're doing to kind yeah. of personal uh, life. Yeah, identifying patterns in your own yeah, life yeah, yeah, and yeah, then seeing the impact on your how data you driven is, on your own life. Yeah, for Very sure. Cool. For sure. Yeah, so let's let's go to the traditional uh, questions. Yep. So the first question is proudest moment in your career. So uh, when you think about it now, you're really uh, kind of excited. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I you know I did like a lot of work previously when I was consulting that I was super proud of, but. Um, for me, like uh, coming to Telia and uh, setting up this team mm-hmm. is, is I'm super proud of that because it, it required, you know, we had to pitch this idea. We had to change the way people were thinking about how we approached customer experience and customer communication. Um, and it was a new country for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the working culture is, is different. Uh, the, the, the country is very different to the UK. So it took me a long time to get used to it. So I'm yeah, I, I'm 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 really proud of that, and I'm really proud of the team we have. Like they do some really great work. They they they're super smart people, um, and we're having an impact on the business. So, I mean, this for me is makes me super proud. Very nice. What are the key differences you notice when you come from UK to Lithuania? What 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 comes to mind? Well, like culturally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got to be careful here when I no. <laughs> <ask this question. laughs> Don't be careful. Uh, yeah. So, like at work, I think it's much more direct. Uh, I, I, there's an interesting fact that in English you have like uh, 2 million words over and like mm-hmm. something crazy like 25% of them are from Shakespeare or something stupid in Lithuanian you have about 500,000 so 25% and there's therefore much more ways to say the same thing in English okay and I've really noticed this like so like in Lithuania it's always the same word <laughs> yeah 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 but it's the much more direct I'm not sure how much of it is related to how many words you have to yeah, play yeah, with yeah. but that's an interesting observation it's data a, driven by the way as yeah, well yeah, yeah. Uh, but you have much yeah there's, there's it's more direct in Lithuania mm-hmm. and this took me a while to get used to I remember there was um, I went to like a steerco for, for uh, some, some initiative when I first joined and I sat through there and I, I kind of I was like, wow, what is, what is this going is on? so intense. Yeah. And I walked out, I said to my boss, well, oh, I guess, I guess that project's over then. She was like, what? No. It's great. We're <laughs> just having a debate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is taking me a while to get used to, okay. but I'm definitely better now. I think it has benefits. I think like outside of work, like, um, I don't know. I, I think uh, I, I'd say like in Lithuania, it's a bit more of a reserved approach. And uh, for me, who's quite extroverted, I think it, uh, it's it's a challenge for me to adapt to, to that sometimes, but I think learning the language helps. Like I'm, I, I can do a bit of small talk in Lithuanian now, so I'm I'm getting there. But yeah, it's it's an ongoing journey for sure. Yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah. I think it's a, a quite interesting characteristics that you're painting. Sort of very direct, but reserved. Yeah, so it is interesting. Interesting contradiction. The, you wouldn't necessarily think those two yeah, together. It, and I don't want to generalize too much, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah, of but, course. But yeah. One thing I've noticed about Lithuanians is that once you get to know them, you're kind of, you're in for life, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I really it, like that. You're accepted into the circle. Yeah, mm. yeah, for sure. Yeah, so let's talk about the biggest failure and be as open as you can. Yeah, yeah, so I saw this on the on the, the sheet before. Uh, I think the <laughs> the one I have that springs to mind is uh, Antelia, so fairly recent, still quite, you know, close to the close to my heart, <laughs> is... Um, we, we launched this brand new onboarding journey for customers, right? And uh, the whole idea here was we wanted to increase the self-service signup usage and reduce the amount of unwanted calls. It was a big thing for us. Um, so we launched this new automated journey and it had loads of info in it. It was so good. It looked great. It was really concise, we thought. Um, 
And I saw in the report that we had, that we had built to measure this, that oh, we had indeed reduced the number of unwanted calls. So I'm sat there going, you know, small victories. We have to celebrate small victories. I'm going around, even at that time, around the room, going, guys, check this out. I take it to um, various Steerco meetings with various senior stakeholders and say, look, guys, look, this works. This is exactly what I was talking about. Small yeah, victory, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. This works. I then go back later that day and realize that I read the report wrong. And we'd actually increased, <laughs> we'd actually increased unwanted calls by, uh, by not insignificant amount, right? So I'm like, oh shit, like, uh, this, uh, so uh, uh, you know, in my head I'm I've going- I've been there before, so, by the way. Yeah, yeah exactly. In my head, it. I'm going small victories. We need to celebrate, start small, show, yeah. that, show that it works. And, it, and I, we've, just, we've just messed it up. Um, so yeah, I had to go back and tell everyone that actually I read the report wrong. Um, we it, we worsened the situation. <laughs> we actually now have more. Yeah. But uh, eventually we kind of, you know, we sat down, we looked at it and said, right, how can we actually improve this? We added different parts to the journey, specifically around payments and billing, which we knew were the, 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 the pain points. And we have reduced it. So in there the end, go. it's a happy kind of, it's story. It's a success. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. now, yeah, we've reduced our unwanted calls uh, by about eleven percent from from new customers. Nice. So this is good. It came from a from a from a mistake. A mistake. Yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah. yeah, it was it was my yeah, heart. I think just this is sank, the, mo yeah. the most embarrassing thing when you read the numbers wrong and you sell and everybody believes that yes, you made the success yeah, and yeah. then oh my god, yeah, this is it. It's, <laughs> my it's, reputation is on the line. Now. Yeah, especially yeah. like you know new business and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. I was I was only like six months in at this point. Yeah. Wow, tough, yeah. tough, tough. <laughs> yeah. So for for someone who is uh, starting out in this area, maybe wants to. Uh, explore some of the topics we discussed. What what books or podcast videos would you recommend? Uh, this podcast. Um, I there's one book that really stands out for me, and it was given to me by my first boss in this area back in London, uh, called Direct and Database Marketing mm -hmm. by the, the classics sort of. Yeah, yeah Graham McDorkel, mm -hmm. and it's a classic. It was written mm -hmm. in the 90s, and it's all about like you know phone and and paper direct marketing. But as we said earlier, the, the, the principles are the same. And I often like just go back to this and read certain chapters to, to get, just to remind myself like what, what we're doing here. Yeah. It, interestingly, there's, there's like a very small chapter at the back, like two pages about predictive analytics. <laughs> even then. <laughs> yeah, even 80s, then. And yeah. he's talking about like, you know, in future with, the, with more data, we'll be able to do all this stuff. So I find that interesting that we're yeah. now entering this space. But yeah, for me, going back to that is a, is a, is a classic for sure. and Very useful. Yeah, th thanks. I, I will confirm that actually the old books on uh, database marketing are very, very relevant mm -hmm. to this day. Mm -hmm. The same principles, absolutely. Definitely. And it's, and it's so clear and concise. Because like, there's no, no noise, like the, all the technology is still not exactly. there. It's just pure, pure concepts. Yeah, yeah exactly that. Yeah, it's, it's a pure principle. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. No worries. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to CVM Stories. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. You can also ask us a question about a particular customer value management challenge you have at work. We will happily ask our experts to tackle your challenge in a future episode.